Welcome to Doctor Informed, the new podcast from the BMJ, created in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge, to talk about all those bits of being a good doctor in hospital that you never really get taught. And today we're going to be talking about compassion and compassionate leadership. I'm Clara Monroe, I'm a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England and I work as a Clinical Editor at the BMJ. Last year I was the national, one of the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows and I worked alongside one of my colleagues who is going to be joining me today. So Aisha, without further ado, I will let you introduce yourself. Hi everyone, my name's Aisha Ashmore, I'm one of the um, National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows as well as Clara's already mentioned and I was um, at an organisation called the Care Quality Commission last year but I'm also an obs and gynae trainee in the East Midlands and currently working in Leicester. I don't know, if do you know a lot about compassionate leadership Aisha, have you ever heard of it? I mean, I think I've heard of it because we've talked about it as part of our fellowship. But prior to that, absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, actually. Yeah, so I think I was probably quite similar. Um, I think when I was applying to the fellowship, I thought I should probably do a leadership course. Um, I think the only one that they had any space on that was relatively cheap was the one on compassionate leadership. Um, But it did change my view of what I think I thought compassionate leadership meant uh, because I sort of thought I would go and they would just tell me about how to be nicer um and actually i think the interesting thing and i'm you know in the interviews that we listen to today obviously the experts will talk on this a lot more articulately than me um but i think being compassionate isn't just about being nice or being kind um it's about doing that as an action um and also sometimes that means telling people when they need to improve or when things aren't working as well as telling them when things are good are there times where you particularly struggle to be compassionate to your either your senior colleagues or your junior colleagues? Yeah, I think whenever there's a mistake, it's and you're the one who has to fix the mistake. It's really tricky because, you know, your inherent kind of reaction is like, oh, God, um, I've got I've got to fix this. And it's adding to my workload and I've got multiple mm. other pressures on me um, that yeah. I need to sort out. But equally at the time, someone, you know, a junior colleague may have come to you like and it's taken a lot of like um, strength and um to for them to even admit to the fact that they made a mistake and um Mm. that they they need your help um and to admit to that is quite difficult and I think being able to realize that and then and then react in a way that is helpful compassionate and solves the problem um can sometimes be quite difficult when you've got a hundred other things that you need to be doing Mm, mm. Yeah, I was, I think, in both of the interviews, I talked to both experts about this because I definitely felt that um, I struggle the most to be compassionate when I'm really busy and there's loads of other things going on. And it's sort of carving out that time um, to act in a way that isn't frustrated or annoyed about stuff. Um, And just before I did the interviews, I'd been on call and it was like the, the, the fourth day on call, it was the end of the day and I'd done this consent form for an appendectomy three times and they the, the third time they called me to say they'd lost it I actually thought they were joking um because I was like surely you haven't lost the consent form three times like that's just not possible um so I went down there and I hadn't eaten and I hadn't 
had a pee and I was just like really grumpy and I was like surely you can't have lost this three times and then I immediately thought oh god I'm about to like interview somebody about compassionate leadership and I have been so anti-compassionate but I yeah I think I really struggled to see the woods from the trees when I'm like in the middle of doing five other things um, I don't know if you find the same. Oh, yeah, definitely. And especially in Ops and Guiney, when um, Labour Ward's busy, it can be really quite tricky. Um, and actually, this this isn't in a um, Labour Ward setting, but I remember there was this time where I had really, really messed up and I had to go and speak to my consultant, who was a brand new consultant, and it was the first time I'd met her, and say, I've really, really messed up. Mm. And I think... Um, because she was, she was the the lady was really really cross at me, and um, it it was interesting because that consultant really could have gone gone off on me because it was a mm. massive, it was gonna it was gonna take her at least forty five minutes to sort out this patient because because she was really cross. Um, and actually, I think I really learned from that just about you know, what I should do with my own behaviours when mm. I've got when I've got competing pressures and a and a junior who's really, really messed up and um mm. they need my help to fix it. So it it is interesting and I think I've changed as a result of my own mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a huge amount of learning to be done, both in terms of like your clinical mistakes, but also when someone else you know when you've behaved in a way that you reflect on and think oh actually that was that was bad and I don't want to be that person that always behaves like that um and I think sometimes when we're doing these podcasts and we talk about um this sort of the unseen curriculum of like sort of becoming more senior as a hospital doctor or as a junior consultant I don't know what you think but I do feel like a some of that learning is not done in a classroom and it's not done formally but it's by seeing those really good examples of behavior um but it's kind of sometimes luck how many of them you come across um yeah like I totally agree and I think that's why culture is really important like having a culture which is conducive to learning and not blaming people when there are mm. mistakes um but also bringing the best out in people and developing mm. a, a team which really does work together is so important and I think that you know a lot of that does come from leading by example and mm. being able to show more junior colleagues you know best practice I guess so that they can they can continue promoting a culture where where people can be compassionate and it's not frowned upon and you know improvement actually happens yeah so it's really interesting you should say that and we're actually going to come back to that but um I think this is probably a good point to uh, bring in our first interview that interview with Michael West is coming up after this message from our sponsors At Medical Protection, we're different. With no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members, we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not, treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. 
If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org/uk. And back to my interview with Michael West. I'm a senior visiting fellow at the King's Fund and Professor of Organisational Psychology at Lancaster University. That's all the kind of formal title stuff. (laughs) Um, And I suppose my mission, if you like, a bit grandiose as a term, but is is really seeking to create the conditions in our health services where we're able to deliver high-quality, compassionate care and at the same time ensure the well-being and the growth and the development and... um, fulfillment of the staff who deliver that care in health and social care services. There's a a fantastic review of hundreds of studies of compassion in healthcare. It's a book, unfortunately, I think called Compassionomics, but it's by um, (laughs) Treziak and Mazzarelli and two American medics, but it's a very, very good review of hundreds of studies. And it's just packed with the information about the links between compassion and patient outcomes, whether it's anaesthetists visiting patients prior to surgery and being compassionate in their interactions, having an effect on um, requirements for um, pain medication post-surgically and a much shorter length of hospital stay, whether it's patients with an early diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer being assigned to early palliative care and living significantly longer. The meta-analyses and RCTs show us just dramatic effects But for me, some of the most convincing evidence is I had the privilege of designing the staff survey originally back in 2003 and uh, working on the implementation of it for some years. And we've had now 18 years worth of data. Over half a million people respond every year to that survey. What we are able to do now is the most sophisticated statistical longitudinal analysis. And what it shows us is that where... Uh, leaders behave in those four ways that we've talked about, attending, understanding, empathising and helping, where staff in trusts report their leaders behave in those ways. Subsequently, what we see in those trusts is higher levels of staff satisfaction and staff engagement. That in turn is associated with higher levels of patient satisfaction. uh, and, And that's associated also with significant improvements in care quality, in in even financial performance and in the acute sector, significantly lower levels of avoidable patient mortality, where staff generally in trusts report their leaders don't behave in those ways. We see staff much more dissatisfied reporting chronic work overload, higher levels of stress, lower levels of patient satisfaction, worse care quality, worse financial performance, and higher levels of avoidable patient mortality. So the the empirical evidence is overwhelming and convincing mm. about the the importance of creating compassionate cultures in our healthcare healthcare organisations. But why do you think that people lose compassion? Why do you think we don't show each other compassion? So a lot of work has been done by a, a, an amazing scholar and uh, researcher, Paul Gilbert, in the UK on human emotion regulation systems, particularly compassion. And, and the, the three emotional regulation system are, uh, systems are focused on threat, focused on resource acquisition and focused on nurturing or compassion. And what he has 
I think very convincingly argued is that there's we've we we have an imbalance. So um, you know we're often much more focused on threat. One of the things that really struck me forcibly during the inquiry that Denise Coyer and I um, conducted, and the same in the in the inquiry into nurse and midwifery mental health and well-being, was how many people told us that they felt they operated in work cultures of fear and blame that often they were working in conditions which were incredibly difficult and they were really afraid of making a mistake. And they felt that if they made a mistake, that they would be uh, landed on very heavily by those above them or by um, senior leaders, by um, the GMC and, you know, even maybe prosecuted. So when you, when you operate in a context of fear and blame, then your threat emotional regulation system becomes dominant. We've also, I think, as a society, become very acquisitive and very focused on acquiring resources. And that, that's become that kind of, I, I don't know, maybe a, a focus on um, control and greed in that sense has, um, has suppressed the, the, the nurturing and the compassion. And over the years, We've seen many studies suggesting greater alienation in society. So I suppose what I'm saying is we've kind of, we've got out of kilter and there's something about re, um, reclaiming that part of us as humans, which is about connection and love and care and trust. And, and we see it in the way our organizations are run. I mean, the NHS has the biggest, most skilled, most motivated, most amazingly compassionate workforce in the whole of industry, yet we we're ma we manage them largely through command and control. It's absurd. It's absurd. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the most effective organisations in the world have no more than three or four reporting levels. Yeah. In the NHS, in the typical trust, reporting levels are in double figures. And every time yeah. you add a reporting level, you add probably 10% to bureaucracy. Well, it's an absurdity. And, it, and what that command and control does is to um, suck away from the, some of the life from compassionate cultures. Mm. We know that there's more bullying and harassment and discrimination in command and control hierarchical cultures. So part of our transformation has to be um, towards more compassion, compassionate and collective team-based um, cultures in our health and care services. You've completely sold compassionate leadership to me all over again. <laughs> um, so in terms of sort of practically things that we can do, how in those moments when we're, you know, and I don't want to use the word burnout loosely, and I know you've done a lot of work with it, but when we start to get burnt out, you know, when we've been mm. working a lot and we're tired and we're frustrated, how do we find that compassion in us? Because that's the bit where I find it really, really hard to be compassionate. Mm. So I think the starting place, Clara, is, um, is, you know, the foundation for our ability to be compassionate to others is our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves. More profoundly, I think self-compassion is having the courage to be self-aware in the moment. So when you do feel irritated and you do feel fed up and you do feel angry, then it's about having the courage to recognize it and to accept it 
rather than beating myself up. Oh, I'm feeling irritated. I was supposed to be compassionate. Oh, I'm hopeless. I'm you know, not even beginning to get to first base with this compassion. It's about accepting feelings rather than just adding another layer of bad feeling on top of that. And then inquiring into it. Why am I feeling like this? Well, that consent form I've had to do three times and there's not enough staff. Um, so inquiring into it and then bringing a nurturing attitude towards ourselves. Ah, it's, of course, you, you know, I feel bad. Of course, I feel upset. It is frustrating. It is ridiculous. We don't have enough staff. It's really hard to do this stuff when we don't have the resources that we need. And, and to, to care for myself. Do you know, even actually I was reading a paper in communication in psycho uh, neuroendocrinology this week. You know, it's what you do when you. Um... <laughs> I was going to say, you just slipped that in there. I was just reading this really complicated paper. <laughs> <laughs> showing the effects of hugs on stress, but also showing. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, really powerful. They, they measured cortisol, heart rate and so on. So when people got a hug, then it has a significant impact reducing cortisol. But the really interesting thing is if you hug yourself in the absence of having somebody to hug for 10 or 15 seconds when you're feeling really bad, it has a significant effect on reducing cortisol and heart rate and um, self-rated stress as well. So, you know, the point of all of this is that when we connect deeply with ourselves in this way, in a caring way, we, 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 we're able to get beneath the flotsam and jetsam of anxieties, irritations, feeling inadequate, feeling overwhelmed, and to connect more deeply with the core values that give our lives meaning like compassion and wisdom and courage. And, and that then enables us to come from that place and connect more authentically, compassionately, deeply with all of those we provide care for, we work with, we interact with, um, in our work and in our lives generally. So I think I probably reflected on it during the interview, but um, the thing that I've thought a lot about since having that conversation with Michael um, was about th this whole idea of self-compassion. And I, I know that that's, I guess it does, it is kind of obvious, what it should be obvious. And we always, you know, go and have your lunch because how can you look after patients if you haven't eaten, Aisha? Um, <laughs> <laughs> who famously said at the beginning of this call she hadn't had lunch. Um, but there, I think that that, I, I almost feel like I add that to my jobs list now as something that I realise is as important as, as the other stuff that I do. Um, because quite often I'll, I'll sort of be busy or I'll be doing something and I'll think, I don't feel good. <laughs> I don't really know why I don't feel good. I'm just irritable and I'm angry and I'm like not, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm doing a good job. And actually when I go through that like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of have I eaten, have I slept, have I had a coffee, you know, the kind of, I guess in the way we think about it clinically, the reversible causes of me being in a bad mood, I try and reverse. Um, but I do have to go through that systematically because I think sometimes when you're in that moment, you you can't you, you can't work out why you're not being compassionate and why you're really annoyed and why you're being grumpy unless you go through it in that systematic way. Um, and maybe that's part of being an adult and maybe I should have come to it a lot earlier than you know, my early thirties, but, um, I think it has definitely changed the way that, 
um, personally and professionally, but more so professionally when there's a lot of other stuff going on. I think there's an element of doctors feeling like they need to be heroes as well, because a lot of, I think a lot of doctors, um, myself included, have this attitude that I need to be working constantly and all of my time and energy needs to be going into delivering patient care in some way or the other. And you do forget to look after yourself a bit. And, and, and that, and that's not just like the day to day, have I had lunch, but it's also like things like sick leave. So Mm. like a lot of people will be absolutely dying, um, with injuries or really unwell or, you know, really struggling with their mental health and they're still coming into work and, you know, they lose that kind of bandwidth to be compassionate because, you know, they feel that their duty is to be there. And, you know, it kind of comes back to this resilience thing. Like you have to look after yourself in order to be able to be a good doctor and and to be compassionate in not just the care that you deliver, but also in how you treat other people within your team and, you know, and deliver care. Yeah, I think that whole thing about resilience is so interesting, isn't it? Because I think in some places, resilience has got a bit of a bad reputation. And I I don't know if it's the same in obs and gynae, but I think in surgery, when people are in a department or, and this is personal experience, but I imagine will be echoed by other people, um, when they're in a department or a hospital where they aren't, you know, where there is a bad culture, they get sent away on resilience training. as the solution to that if they're not you know if they can raise an issue about the fact that there's a lot of bullying or something um but actually you know that's really taking away from something that's so important which is you build your resilience to the what Michael refers to as the flotsam and jetsam of the everyday by you know for me it's like going on a really long walk at the weekend uh, and having nice food and seeing my family and seeing my friends and having like good quality time with them so that when I am back in work I'm not operating from sort of two percent of my battery. What did you think about um, what Michael said about the system and the way that the system kind of takes compassion out of what we do? Yeah I think I think that's so true I think the way that things are set up nowadays um doctors especially junior doctors rotate a lot um we don't get to develop the relationships with our teams you know we work with we work in so many different environments that we never really get to know anyone very well and I think that Mm. really detracts from a receiving compassionate kind of um not care but you know having um, compassionate interactions with people that we work with but also being able to be compassionate ourselves um, towards other people as well because mm. so for instance um you know in in obstetrics there's this whole business about um teams should train together teams who work together should train together and that's come out one of the out of one of the big reviews of maternity services from the Ockenden report but actually interesting um but actually we we work together and train together for at most a year and then we rotate um, 